recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogeny Iran Talk Show, or Christogeny or Internet Radio, excuse me. I haven't done that in a while. Today is Friday, September 13th, 2013. We will be presenting Acts chapter 13, part 2. I have a few comments before we commence with our presentation of Acts 13. My first comment concerns the Dandridge Dandy, and insiders at Christagenia should know who I mean. The Dandridge Dandy, the old geezer who thinks that he exclusively has truth from God. I've learned from watching one of his own videos, this man claiming to be an, an expert on scripture, Greek, Hebrew. I watched one of his own videos this week and began typing an answer out to it on a Christagenia forum. Half of it's posted if you want to go looking for it. If you're not a forum member, you won't be able to find the sub-forum that it's in. That's by design. I want to answer this, that this clown's heresies, but I'm not going to give him undeserved publicity. Well, from watching one of his own videos this week, I learned that not only doesn't he know the Greek alphabet or, or grammar, he doesn't even know the alphabet. He doesn't know Greek grammar or the alphabet, yet he pretends to be an expert in Greek. His own video proves he doesn't know the Greek alphabet. I don't know how you could read the language if you don't even know the alphabet. I will be making further posts on that Sunday and Monday at Christigen the Christagenia Forum. Aside from that, certain elements and, and the leader of the Jewish quarter of Christian identity, the Novemberites, have somehow proven that my words accuse Yahweh our God of being a universalist. I don't know how they do that, but I'm going to recap a few things that I said. When I define, and it's my definition of course, when I define universalism back in April on the Christogenia Forum and in the subsequent Saxon Messenger editorial for May, I'm going to repeat my definition of universalism and I'm going to point out some things I said in my presentation two weeks ago, or three, on the Canaanite woman from my April article. Here is how we define the term, meaning universalism. Generally, universalism is the belief that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and the God of Israel, blesses, favors, shows mercy, or demonstrates grace towards any other people other than those who are the explicit subjects of the promises of these things in Scripture. Aside from these things, universalism is the belief that Yahweh God has provided his word for the benefit, practice, obedience, or prosperity of anyone outside of those whom he explicitly provided it for those same purposes. Additionally, universalism is the belief that Yahweh God for beneficent purposes, works through or operates upon or on behalf of any people other than those whom he has explicitly chosen for such purposes as stated in his word. Concerning the Canaanite woman, Joshua Christ healed her daughter. Why did he heal the daughter of the Canaanite woman? Why would Yahweh preserve a Canaanite? As he clearly did in that instance. 
Well, in Joshua chapter 23, verse 13, it says, and this falls into the category of explicitly choosing people for his purposes. Know for a certainty that Yahweh your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you, and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good land, which Yahweh your God has given you. Why would he heal a Canaanite woman? Judges chapter 3. Now these are the nations which Yahweh left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan. Only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, at the least, such as before knew nothing thereof. Why would he preserve the Canaanites to teach the children of Israel war? Why would he preserve the Canaanites? Because as a punishment for the children of Israel, which is actually a beneficent purpose, they would be thorns in our eyes and pricks in our sides. Or perhaps pricks in our eyes and thorns in our sides. It doesn't really matter. Why would he heal a Canaanite? To perpetuate that word in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. Because anyone, and this is what the Novemberites don't understand, and that they, they fall victim to it at the same time. Anyone who would take that story of Yahshua Christ healing the Canaanite woman and try to extrapolate that into grace for the Canaanites and for the sake of the Canaanites definitely has thorns in their eyes. They are absolutely blind. And that fulfills the word of God. By their own mouths, they prove the word of God fulfilled. All universalists who would point to that Canaanite woman's daughter and say, see, Yahweh loves the other races too. They have thorns in their eyes. There's no doubt. Thinking that the God can change. Thinking that the word of God comes to naught. They have thorns in their eyes. That's the fulfillment of Judges 23.13 in the New Testament. Now we will commence with the book of Acts, chapter 13, part 2. Last week, presenting part 1 of Acts, chapter 13, due to its great length, we were impelled to leave off in the middle of Paul's address to an assembly of Judeans in Pisidian Antioch. This address began in verse 16 of the chapter. And in it, Paul's primary task was to explain that the ministry, the death by crucifixion, and the subsequent resurrection of Yahshua Christ was indeed the fulfillment of the scriptural promises of a Savior and a King to the children of Israel. Presenting the beginning of Paul's discourse last week, we read, from 2 Samuel, from Jeremiah chapter 30, from Hosea chapter 3, from Isaiah chapter 53, in order to show just some of the many scriptures which support Paul's assertions. Part of Paul's challenge was to convince 
The Judeans dispersed throughout the Oikumene, the white world, the Adamic world, the Greco-Roman world, that this is true, that Yahshua Christ was indeed the fulfillment of these promises found in Scripture. And in every place which he visits, he uses the local assembly halls of the Judeans in order to introduce himself to the Judeans and to the people. Last week, we saw that Paul of Tarsus had two names, Saulus, or Saul, and Paulus, or Paul. We promised to discuss the meaning of those names as they relate to Paul's ministry. Last week, we also saw that Paul and Barnabas were distinguished by Yahweh God for a special mission. In verse 2 of this chapter, where it says of the apostles in general, and upon their performing services to the prince, or the Lord, and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke, now set apart for me Barnabas and Saulus for the work which I have called them. This mission, we shall learn as the book of Acts is further presented, and as we saw when we discussed that verse in relation to Paul's words in Galatians 2, verse 8, was to bring the gospel of Yahweh God to the nations of the children of Israel who were dispersed long before this time. Such is why Paul and Barnabas set out for the Mediterranean islands and the Greek regions of Anatolia and Europe. As the Hebrew Old Testament traditions are revealed in Scripture, a man's name frequently had meaning in relation to aspects of or even the purpose of his life. This is evident also in the life of Paul of Tarsus, where the meanings of Paul's names certainly do relate to aspects of his ministry. The Hebrew word from which the name Saul is derived which was also the name of the first Israelite king, is Strong's number 7586, and it is Shaul. But while it has a distinct Strong's entry, it is actually only a form of another word found at 7592, which is Shaal, a verb which means to inquire or to request. I believe that this is the word which has given us the English word shall. Inquiring into the scriptures, we find that Yahshua is indeed the Christ. Paul's name, Solace, comes from a word which means to inquire. However, in Hebrew, the name Saul can also be spelled the same as the Hebrew word Sheol. The Hebrew word which we in English pronounce Sheol which refers to the abode of the spirits of the dead, sometimes simplified as a reference to the grave. Now, if one scoffs at the idea of an abode for the spirits of the dead, I would refer that individual to 1 Peter, verses 3, 19 and 20. The dispersed children of Israel, of the nations to whom Paul preached, hearing the gospel message which Paul first brought to them, were indeed dead in sin and dead without their relationship to Yahweh their God, which the purpose of the gospel was to restore. There is also a Greek word, solace, which is an adjective, and which according to Liddell and Scott, can mean straddling. That also describes the ministry of Paul who straddled both the Judaism of the remnant 
and the paganism of the dispersions of Israel, and who straddled both the scripture of the Hebrews and the profane literature of the Greeks in order to present the gospel of God to the dispersed children of Israel. However, the word from which the name Paul is derived is not from Hebrew. It is a Latin word, or it is a Greek word, possibly. The Latin word Paulus means little, which perfectly describes how Christianity began. The gospel was in the hands of a very few men who had numerous and great adversaries in a very large world. The word little also describes Paul as he saw his own ministry, calling himself the least of the apostles. That the children of Israel can only find rest in the gospel of Christ in their obedience to, to their God is a core component of Paul's message. The Greek word Paula is actually a feminine form, and if it was expressed in a masculine form, it would be Paulus, the name of Paul. And it means rest. So in several ways, both of Paul's names, Saul and Paul, can be related to aspects of his mission. But that all of the potential definitions of his names can be related to the nature of his ministry cannot merely be a coincidence. We left off last week with Acts 13.27, where Paul said, Indeed, those dwelling in Jerusalem and their leaders, not knowing him, not knowing Christ, and the voices of the prophets being read throughout every Sabbath, judging him, have fulfilled them. Here we discuss the words of Isaiah chapter 6 and saw that they were fulfilled when the people of Jerusalem whether they were of the Canaanite enemies of Christ or whether they were of his own people, would be blind to the prophecies concerning Christ and that their blindness assisted in the fulfillment of his mission because he had to die as a man. Yet that those who judge Christ did not actually know him is certainly an indication that neither could they have been his sheep, which he himself told them as it is recorded in John chapter 10. In this manner, a word meaning no is used in much the same way as it was with Joseph and the Pharaoh in the Exodus account. Exodus 1.8 A Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. For Joseph must have been known of since it was such a short time after the end of his life that this new pharaoh came into power, and this new pharaoh was of the same dynasty and household as the old pharaoh 
under whom Joseph was the vizier of Egypt. However, that which is alien to us, whether we're, what we see it or not, is truly not known to us regardless of our seeing or hearing. And it can be established that the new Pharaoh of Exodus chapter 1 was indeed the son of a Hittite woman, a bastard of the same Canaanite stock as the enemies of Christ are here. With this, we shall commence with Paul's address in Acts chapter 13, verse 28. And finding not any guilt for death, Paul describing the ministry of Christ in his crucifixion, they demanded of Pilate for him to be killed, talking about the leaders of the Judeans. And as they completed all the things which are written concerning him, taking him down from the beam, they laid him in a tomb. This word rendered beam is zulon, Strong's 3586, and may have been translated as a tree or a stock. It's a wooden board, plank, post. In this manner, as Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3, Christ became a curse on our behalf. For the law in Deuteronomy 21-23 says in part, For he that is hanged is the curse of God. Now the version of verses 28 and 29 in the Codex Beze suffers from imperfect grammar, as the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Greca, or the NA27, also indicates. But I will read it here. And finding not any guilt for him, for death in him, judging him, they gave him over to Pilate in order that for which to be killed, and as they completed all the things which are written concerning him, they demanded of Pilate indeed to crucify him. And again being successful in taking him down from the beam, also they laid him in a tomb. Contains several interpolations there. While the original texts of Acts chapter 13 verses 28 and 29 surely leave no doubt that the leaders of the Judeans were responsible for the execution of Christ and not the Romans. And the Gospels certainly demonstrate the truth of Paul's words, yet this version which I just read, which is found in the Codex Beze and the interpolations it contains, seems to reflect a desire on the part of at least some early Christians to magnify that understanding emphatically. The Judeans, those who rejected Christ being the ancestors of today's Jews, are those responsible for the crucifixion of Christ and not the Romans. His blood is on them and their children as they themselves attested, which is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. The statement, when it was made, references guilt and not the Christian symbol of his mercy. Verse 30. But Yahweh raised him from the dead, who appeared over many days to those who went up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. The Gospel of Mark contains nothing legitimate of the events following the resurrection of Christ. The current text of those Bibles, which contain verses from Mark 16.9 through 
only represents one of several endings created by later scribes for a gospel of which the original ending must have been lost, if indeed it ever continued beyond Mark 16.8 at all. Mark 16.8 is the last legitimate verse in Mark. The remaining three gospels describe different events related to the appearances of Christ to his disciples after his resurrection. And those events are told from different perspectives. Paul himself offers a summary in his epistles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, from verse 3, For you are among the first, he's writing to the Corinthians, of course, that I had transmitted to that which I also had received. And the first mention of Paul in Corinth is in Acts chapter 18. That Christ had been slain for our errors in accordance with the writings. He means the errors of himself and the errors of the Corinthians. Sin. Sin, violation of the law. And that he had been buried and that he was raised in the third day in accordance with the writings. And that he appeared to Cephas, the Hebrew form of the word stone, the name of Peter. Then to the twelve. Now Paul evidently referred to the entire group of apostles as the twelve, even though they were not twelve at that time. Thereafter, he had appeared to no more than 500 brethren at the same time, of whom the greater number remain until presently, which is at least 20 years after the resurrection. But some have died. Then he had appeared to Jacob, then to all of the ambassadors, and last of all, just as if from a wound, he had appeared to me also. Therefore I am the least of the ambassadors, who am not fit to be called an ambassador because I persecuted the assembly of Yahweh, an ambassador or an apostle. Paul calling himself the least of the apostles, we should again note that the Latin word paulus means small. Now from this it can be clearly discerned that while there were indeed men who were recognized as apostles by Christ who were the bearers of his teachings, yet there were hundreds of others who witnessed his resurrection and must have testified to it throughout the subsequent years. For this reason, did Christianity eventually become the prevalent religion throughout the empire, although many elements of paganism persisted among the people, and those elements still do to this very day. But so many people seeing his resurrection, 500, at least 512, right? And willing to die for their testimony. That is why Christianity prevailed, even though it was corrupted when it became an official religion within the empire. Verse 32. And we announce the good message to you, the promise having come to the fathers, that this is Yahweh fulfilled to our children, the fathers, the children, raising up Yahshua, as also in the second psalm it is written, you are my son, today I have engendered you. Now that seems disjointed, right? Reading it on the surface. 
There are some differences in the readings of the manuscripts here. Some manuscripts have that Yahweh fulfilled the promise to us, their children. The Codex Beze has, in this last part, raising up the Prince Yahshua Christ for thusly in the first psalm, it is written. Now the third century papyrus P45 agrees with the text, except that where the text has second psalm, P45 only has in the psalms it is written, wanting the word for second. The quote is in Psalm 2. It is in the second psalm of our modern Bibles, as the psalms are listed, both the King James or the Masoretic text-based Bibles and in the Septuagint. Now, regardless of which of these manuscript readings is correct, Paul's message here is once again a very pointed racial message. The statement connecting the promise having come to the fathers directly to the children of the people of ancient Israel. Since Paul's address is to his brethren who are Israelites and who are sons of the race of Abraham, as we have seen at the beginning of his discourse here in verse 26. We see this idea is also fully reflected in that very gospel which was written by Paul's companion Luke. For only Luke records the prophetic words of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, at the end of Luke chapter 1, where it describes the very purpose of the Messiah. And it says, Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he has visited and brought about redemption for his people, Israel. Just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from of old, preservation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to bring about mercy with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, which is given to us, the descendants of Abraham through Jacob, Israel, for which to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the dismissal of their sins. All of this language is exclusive to a physical, to a genetic Israel. And all the writings and recorded actions of both Paul and Luke must be understood in this context. All of them. The Paul bashers are not with us. The Paul bashers are working against us. This exclusive language barely appears in the general epistles, if I have to call them Catholic epistles. This exclusive language barely appears in the other Gospels. It's much more pointed. It's spelled out precisely in the letters of Paul, in the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. Make no doubt about it. The Paul bashers are not doing identity Christians any favors because they would dismiss all of this offhandedly because of a couple of lines in Paul's epistles which are perverted by Judeo-Christians. 
which are taken out of context, which are removed from the racial understanding, which Paul and Luke both clearly had. And the real value lies in the fact that Luke was Greek. And Paul taught that the Greeks certainly were amongst the dispersions of ancient Israel. And we'll see more of that tonight. The quote of the second psalm, given here at the end of verse 33, is from Psalm 2-7. At the end of this verse of Acts 13, the Codex Beze interpolates the text which is found at Psalms 2-8. I'm going to read the, the entire psalm momentarily, so I won't repeat the line from Psalms 2-8. Now this is important. Here it is evident that when Paul or when any other apostle in Scripture quotes from the Old Testament writings, it is our duty to go back to examine those writings for the context. To someone who does not know the Scripture, here, in Paul's quote, by itself, the clause you are my son, today I have engendered you, has nothing to do with anyone in particular, let alone with Christ. However, if one reads the entirety of the second psalm, and these men Paul was talking to knew their scripture, that line would evoke the entirety of the second psalm in the mind of anyone who is instant in scripture. If one reads the entirety of that psalm, in context, the clause has everything to do with Christ. Paul's invocation of this line requires that his listeners go back and read that psalm, hopefully to determine that same thing for themselves. to arrive at the same conclusion that Paul did. We learn much more from Scripture and gain much more insight into the minds of the New Testament writers when we do that. Because the New Testament writers were certainly not quoting Scripture out of context as the Judaized churches of today would have us to believe. They weren't just citing certain verses from the Old Testament because they sounded cool or because they needed something to write. Psalm 2. Why do the heathen or why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. The enemies of God have always wanted to destroy our race. The psalm has a trifold fulfillment. Once in Christ, once in David, and once in our race. In this age, and in Christ once again. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Yahweh shall have them in derision. 
Then he shall speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree Yahweh hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, or the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Now, while aspects of the psalm indeed apply to David in his own time, yet this is clearly also a messianic prophecy which can only apply to Christ, and especially the last half of it, which far transcends the scope, the duration, and the power of David's kingdom. The final proof that the second psalm is a messianic prophecy is found in the revelation of Joshua Christ. In his own words, in Revelation chapter 2, from verse 26, and he that overcomes and keeps my words unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with the rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. There we have it. And I will give to him the morning star. And the best commentary on this is found in Luke chapter 6 from verse 40. The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. Verse 34. And because he raised him from the dead, no longer going to return to corruption, thusly he said that I shall give to you the holy things assured to David. From Isaiah chapter 55, which actually continues a much longer messianic prophecy, which actually begins several chapters earlier, at least 51, I don't know about 50, I'd have to go back and look. Incline your ear, and come unto me, here, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. That's the way the King James translates that phrase, the holy things assured to David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. This leader, this witness, this commander can only be Christ, of whom David was a type. Of course, David was long dead when Isaiah wrote. That Christ was to be the recipient of the promises to David is elucidated in this prophecy. However, it is also clear that Christ himself is the psalm of the sure mercies as the King James Version has it, which were promised to David. 
Therefore, in Christ, Yahweh God himself becomes one of the seed of David and the heir to David's throne, the king of Israel, as he was in the days before Israel demanded an earthly king. In Christ, he sets things aright. We can't. Verse 35, on which account, also in another, he says, you shall not give your sanctioned one to see corruption. The quote is from Psalm 16. Sanctioned one can be translated holy one. Psalm 16.10. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The martyr Stephen is recorded in Acts chapter 2 as having presented this same argument. That because David did die and see corruption, the promise concerning the Holy One was actually made for a future Messiah and not for David. And in Christ is its fulfillment since Christ died but was raised before he suffered corruption. While David himself will be in the resurrection and won't be left in hell or in Sheol, that can only be through Christ. Verse 36, for indeed David, serving his own generation, by the will of Yahweh, slept and was placed with his fathers, and has seen corruption. But he whom Yahweh has raised has not seen corruption. The best commentary on these verses is found in the words of the martyr Stephen, where it acts, chapter 2, verses 29 through 32, he is recorded as having said, Men, brothers, I have to speak to you with frankness concerning the patriarch David, because he has also died and is buried, and his tomb is among us under this day, and it was. Therefore, being a prophet and one who knows that Yahweh had sworn an oath to him that one from the fruit of his loins is to sit upon his throne, having foreseen he had spoken concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not be left behind in Hades, nor his flesh see corruption. This is Yahshua, whom Yahweh has resurrected, of whom all of us are witnesses. Here in Acts 13.36, we see one of those few occasions in the New Testament with a Greek word, Ganea, Strong's number 1074 may be properly translated as generation in context. However, that does not eliminate the primary meaning of the word from its definition. The primary meaning of the word is race, stock, or family. Secondarily, the word can mean a race, comma, generation according to Liddell and Scott in the seventh edition of their lexicon. When used of a generation of men who are all alive at the same time, 
The meaning of this word must be limited to a generation of a particular race of men. The idea that a word can only mean one thing or another, and therefore a word must somehow lose part of its meaning if it appears in certain contexts, that idea is a shallow and simplistic idea that has no basis in truth. David did not serve any Chinamen or Hottentots who may have been alive at his time. David did not serve the Amorites and the Moabites whom he slaughtered and whose lands he possessed. Rather, David served his generation of Israel and the members of that particular race who lived while he ruled as their king. Translated generation, the word genea refers to a generation of a particular race. The word race, the meaning race, can never be separated from the word genea. Under any circumstances, it can mean a race, or it could refer to a race of men alive at any particular time. It sure as hell can't refer to Hottentots if it's applied to Israel. Verse 38. Therefore, it must be known by you, men, brethren, that through this, the Codex Laudianus has through him, for you is remission of errors or sins declared. And because of all whom were not able to be justified by the law of Moses, by this, all who are believing are justified, or all who are trusting. Here in verses 38 and 39, the notes in the NA27, which explain the variant readings in the different Greek manuscripts, do not account for the differences in the King James Version, which are evident in the order of the clauses, but where the meaning of the message is the same. In fact, it's, it even seems a little stronger the way the King James Version has taken the liberty to reorder the clauses. But it doesn't damage the meaning. I have one idiomatic meaning here in the word apo. Apo is a present, a preposition which literally means from, and I have it because of in verse 38. Liddell and Scott would support that. Let me read from the blessing of Israel by Moses, <clears throat> recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 33, from verse 3. Yeah, he loved the people. All his saints are in thy hand. And they sat down at thy feet. Everyone shall receive of thy words. Everyone of Israel. Moses commanded us a law. And the word even is added to the King James text, so I won't read it. Moses commanded us a law the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. The law is an inheritance of the people of Israel and nobody else. From Psalm 147, from verse 18, he sends out his word and melts them, the enemies of God. He causes his wind to blow and the waters flow. He shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes and judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, 
and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. Not only do those passages tell us that the law belongs to Israel and that only Israel received the law, those passages tell us that the law is not for anyone else. This idea of dominion theology where the white race in Israel is supposed to rule over the other races, forget it. The law is not for them. They have not known his judgments. Psalm 50 says that the wicked shouldn't even have the laws of Yahweh in their mouths. Therefore, they can't be anything but wicked permanently. There were reasons for that. They can't be made to be good by the laws of God. It's genetic. It's not behavioral. Of course, the law of Moses was only given to the children of Israel. One of the lessons of the Old Testament was that the children of Israel could not be justified by the law alone, even though the law itself is good. Therefore, the scope of the context demands that all those believing can only be imagined to be from among those who were not able to be justified by the law of Moses. Either side of the equation can only refer to the genetic children of Israel, since only the genetic children of Israel were ever given the law of Moses, and since only Israel was ever given the promises of the new covenant and of salvation and of the cleansing of sin because sin is violation of the law which only they were given. Paul upheld this message of exclusivity all the way to the end of his ministry. Where at Acts chapter 26, verse 7, he is recorded as having said, unto which promise our 12 tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, speaking to an Edomite, I am accused of the Jews. The Jews who rejected Christ are not Israel, and they have always been contrary to the promises made to our 12 tribes. Because all men sin, and the law itself can justify no man. In his epistle, which was addressed to them, Paul explains to the Galatians, who are also descended from the dispersions of ancient Israel, namely those who were in the Assyrian captivity, and I'll start with verse 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse on our behalf. This letter to the Galatians parallels this address to the people at Pisidian Antioch. But the faith, having come, no longer are we under it. I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. Verse 24. 
So the law has been our tutor for Christ in order that from faith we would be deemed righteous. The law could not justify us, but all those who believe that Yahshua Christ, Yahweh come in the flesh, died for our sins, shall be justified. Verse 25, Galatians 3. But the faith having come, no longer are we under a tutor, for you are all sons of Yahweh through the faith in Yahshua Christ. And when the fulfillment of the time had come, Yahweh had dispatched his son, having been born of a woman, having been subject to law, born under the laws of Moses, in order that he would redeem those subject to law, nobody else, that we would recover the position of sons. Yes, I skipped ahead from Galatians 3, 24 and 25 to Galatians 4, 4 and 5 out of the descendants of the ancient Israelites, all those who believed Christ recovered a position of sonship which their ancestors had lost in their disobedience to the laws of Moses. Paul's language here. And throughout his epistles is very consistent and pointedly exclusive to the descendants of the children of Israel. Verse 40, therefore you watch, lest that spoken by the prophets may come. Some manuscripts add the words upon you here. Verse 41, Paul quoting Habakkuk. Behold, you despisers, and wonder and hide from sight. Because I work a work in your days, a work which you shall by no means believe, even if someone related it to you. In verse 41, the King James has the verb aphanizo, 853, as perish. The literal meaning is to hide from sight or to disappear from sight. The Codex Beze inserts the phrase, and they were silent at the end of verse 41, which really doesn't make sense because, well, well, I'm sorry, it does make sense. This is the end of Paul's address. This final scriptural reference offered by Paul, as his address here comes to a close, is from Habakkuk 1.5. The work being worked would require an examination of the entire prophecy of Habakkuk since it culminates in chapter 3 of his book. And the day of the wrath of Yahweh, which ends with the ultimate salvation of the people of Judah. Habakkuk being a prophecy for the people of Judah left in Jerusalem before the Babylonian invasions. Here we shall examine both the King James Version of Habakkuk 1.5 and that of Breton Septuagint, which is clearly based on an edition very close to the Greek which Paul seems to have been following. From the King James Version, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which ye will believe not, though it be told to you. The phrase among the heathen should probably be among the nations. However, 
The words of the prophet addressed the people of Judea prior to its invasion by the Babylonians. So they really don't make sense, right? From Brenton's Septuagint, Habakkuk 1.5, Brenton's English, not mine. Behold, ye despisers, and look, and wonder marvelously, and vanish. For I work a work in your days, which ye will in no wise believe, though a man declare it to you. So Paul was certainly following a version very close to that. And I only wanted to point out that difference. Verse 42. Paul's address now being finished. And upon their going out, they exhorted them, the people exhorted Paul and Barnabas, for which to speak these words to them after the Sabbath. As for the words upon their going out, the assembly was dissolving as Paul's address came to a close. The majority text has going out from the assembly hall of the Judeans. However, the King James Version very dishonestly translated that as when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue. The text of the Christogonian New Testament follows all of the ancient codexes, all of which contain no reference at all to Judeans in this verse, right? There's no reference, there's no word Judeans in this verse, even in the majority text. I'm sorry, it is in the majority text, going out from the assembly hall of the Judeans. Rather than the words they exhorted them, the Codex Vaticanus has they thought it fitting. The Codex Laudianus, the people exhorted them. It wants that phrase entirely. The majority text has the people exhorted them. The King James Version has the Gentiles besought. The difference is in the interpretation of the Greek phrase, ta ethne, and we will discuss that at length when we approach verse 46. Verse 43, then upon the assembly halls being discharged, many of the Judeans and pious converts followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking with them, persuaded them to continue in the favor of Yahweh. And this, in truth, dismantles the paradigm that the majority text is trying to set up here. In spite of the ancient codexes, let me repeat some of this so that, so, so that we see it clearly. Verse 42, and upon their going out, they exhorted them for which to speak these words to them after the Sabbath. Now, that text is an honest word-for-word -word translation of the Greek text as it appears in the 5th century Codex Sinaiticus. I'm sorry, in the 4th century Codex Sinaiticus. In the 4th century Codex Vaticanus, in the 5th century Codex Alexandrinus, in the 5th century Codex Ephraimi Siri, in the 5th century Codex Beze, and in the 5th century Codex Laudianus. None of those ancient codices have any reference at all to Judeans or Jews 
in verse 42. But the majority text has, going out from the assembly hall of the Judeans, and the King James Version translates that very dishonestly, when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue. This is an agenda. And the agenda of the King James translators and the people who created the majority text is to set Jews in opposition to Gentiles, right? That's an agenda that doesn't stand up when you compare all the ancient manuscripts. Verse 43, Then upon the assembly halls being discharged, many of the Judeans and pious converts follow Paul and Barnabas, who speaking with them persuaded with them to continue in the favor of Yahweh. Right there we see that there were Judeans and other people who weren't Judeans who were attending this Greek synagogue or this Greek Judean assembly hall. Okay? But there were, in, in, in the Judeo-Christian paradigm, there were Jews and Gentiles following Paul and Barnabas. So how do they set up a paradigm which seems to pit or to want to pit Jews against Gentiles? It falls apart when we examine the texts. It doesn't exist when we examine the ancient manuscripts. It doesn't exist at all. After verse 43, the Codex Beze inserts the sentence, and it happened that the word of Yahweh passed through the whole city. The Codex Laudianus has a similar interpolation, and it happened that the word was being reported throughout all the city. The fact that there are pious converts here, following Paul and Barnabas, does not change the fact that the words of the promises to Israel which were repeated from Scripture in Paul's address here, are indeed exclusive to the children of Israel. However many of these converts may well have been Israelites themselves, whether or not they were aware of it. Here we are in a Greek city, Antioch, in Pisidia, an ancient district of Anatolia. This part of Anatolia and the surrounding area was settled at various times throughout history by the followers of Talcus, who were considered to be Greeks and who were known as Pamphylians. Pamphylians is actually a, a compound Greek word, which indicates that the region consisted of multiple tribes. It was also settled by Lydians. Lydians were Shemitic descendants of Lud, the Lud who was mentioned as the son of Shem in Genesis chapter 10. It was also settled by Dorian Greeks. It was also settled by Persians who were descended from Elam, a son of Shem, mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. And by Macedonians who were Greeks and who were probably a mix of Trojans and possibly some Danan Greeks. It was settled by Ionian Greeks who were Japetites, descended from Javan, the son of Japheth in Genesis chapter 10. Later on, it was settled by some of the Galatians. The Galatians were descended from some of the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations. 
There were also a large number of Romans throughout Anatolia at this time. It can be established that the followers of Calchas, the earliest recorded inhabitants, recorded, there may have been others, there may have been Canaanites or others before them. The followers of Calchas were akin to the Trojans. And like the Romans, they were at least in part descended from ancient Judah. It can be established that the Danans were Israelites from Egypt, and that the Dorians were Israelites from Palestine. Some people may, some people who know the history of the area may think about the Phrygians, and it was inhabited by Phrygians. However, the Phrygians, by all accounts, are descendants of the Lydians. So I didn't count them. Lydians already being mentioned here. As for the non-Israelite peoples of Shemite and Jephethite origins, if any of their descendants were present here, or even if any Canaanites, Edomites, or other aliens were present here and listened to Paul's address, is immaterial. It doesn't matter, since their presence still does not change the fact that Paul's address was for his Israelite brethren. It was for the sons of the race of Abraham. The promises were only for those people, as Paul explains. His entire address explains that the faith in Christ is for those people whose ancestors were Israelites under the law. And Paul explains that explicitly in this address. We, being men, must not perceive the word of God to change by our own circumstances or by our perception of the circumstances of others. The word of God does not change, and neither did Paul ever seek to change it. Verse 44. Then, on the coming Sabbath, nearly all the city gathered to hear the word of the prince. The codices Alexandrinus and Laudianus have on the following Sabbath. And the Judeans seeing the crowd, were filled with jealousy and were blaspheming, contradicting the things being spoken by Paul. Some codices have contradicting the words. Yet the crowd here, the crowd which the Judeans were seeing, must have also consisted of Judeans, since in verse 43 it is explained that many of the Judeans followed Paul and Barnabas. So we cannot imagine that all of the Judeans here rejected the gospel, as many commentators who would take certain elements of this account, and especially the, the, the practically treacherous edition in the King James, many commentators would take elements of this account out of context, attempting to lead us to perceive that this was a Jew versus Gentile scenario. It is evident 
that those Judeans who rejected Paul's message cannot even be said to have been more numerous than those Judeans who had received it. Verse 46, Then Paul and Barnabas, speaking openly, said, To you it was necessary to speak the word of Yahweh first, since you have rejected him and judge yourselves not worthy of eternal life. Behold, we turn to the people. And I know that the King James Version has Gentiles there, right? We turn to the Gentiles. We're going to discuss this at length. The Greek phrase, ta ethne, is the accusative plural of the Greek word ethnos, 1484, accompanied by the definite article. So it, it, it refers to particular ethne, particular ethnoi in the nominative case, right? It refers to particular nations because it's a accompanied with the definite article. Here, in the Christogenian New Testament, the phrase is rendered, the people. There are several other places in the New Testament where the context dictates that the word ethnos be rendered people and not nation, as the King James often renders it, or even Gentile. Among those places are Mark eleven seventeen. Luke 18.32, Acts 8.9, Acts 14.2, and Acts 18.6, and 1 Corinthians 12.2. I won't read them all. The King James Version itself has people for the Greek word ethnos in Acts 8.9. So we see that the translation is possible. There's one other place we'll get to in a moment. And the King James Version must be noted at Isaiah 56.7, which is quoted in Mark 11:17. While ethnos in the plural is nations in Mark 11:17, the Hebrew word where that verse in Mark's gospel quoted Isaiah is people in Isaiah 56:7, and it's not goy, it's am. Furthermore, in the King James Version, the word ethnos is rendered once again as people and as nation where it appears twice in the same verse in Romans 10.19. The first time, ethnos is people. The second time, in the same verse, ethnos, the same word, is nation. In the Septuagint, Brenton has people for ethnos in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 2. I haven't yet undertaken the arduous task of checking elsewhere in his translation. At Acts 14.2, the phrase ta ethne should be the people where the word appears alongside both Judeans and Greeks. And in the context of 14.1, and we'll probably discuss this again next week, it is ridiculous to imagine that it should mean Gentiles in the sense of non-Jews. At Luke, I'm sorry, at Luke 18.32, the phrase ta ethne should also be rendered the people instead of the Gentiles when we read that passage and understand from the gospel that both Judeans, the Judeans and the Roman soldiers spat upon and mocked the Christ. In any event, 
On two occasions, Acts 8-9 and Romans 10-19, the King James Version itself understood the need and rendered the Greek word ethnos as people rather than as nation or Gentile or heathen. Why should it be people in any context? We're going to address that now. There is a feature of Greek language and culture which is lost on most Bible commentators today, but which is certainly apparent in the New Testament. Because this group is a mixed group, the mixed group cannot properly be termed as a laos, which is the word which literally means people in Greek. A laos in Greek is a people as a collective unit, but the group which consists of people of various ethnic backgrounds is not properly considered a laos, and therefore such a group is termed ta ethne, literally a phrase which literally means the nations. It refers to the nations of the people in such a mixed place. It's an aspect of Greek culture, that usage, which not very many people understand. According to Liddell, Liddell and Scott, a laos is the people both in singular and plural. And although Brenton writes peoples for the plural in Psalm 116, verse 1 in the Septuagint, Sayer makes no definite comment except to say, and I'm talking about Joseph Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, he says the plural seems to be used of the tribes of the people, the tribes of one group of people. And he gives Genesis 49.10, Deuteronomy 32.8, Isaiah 3.13, and Acts 4.27 as examples. So in Greek... Whenever we have a group of people of mixed ethnic background, regardless of the fact that they are generally all white people, they are called ta-ethne, which indicates that the group is comprised of people of different nations. A group of people in Greek can only be a laos when they are all of the same nation. That's why sometimes, even though the translation is incomplete in English, sometimes the words ta-ethne in the New Testament really must be translated the people. And it refers to a group of people who were derived from different nations. It, 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 so it's a phrase that's, its meaning in Greek is hard to relate in equivalently simple terms in English. It is an absolute fallacy committed by many theologians that here in Acts chapter 13, or again where a similar statement occurs in Acts chapter 18, that Paul invents a new religion, that's what they accuse him of doing, rejecting the Judeans, rejecting Israel, because they perceived the Judeans as Israel, and bringing Christianity to some Gentiles in their place, as they so wrongly define that term to mean non-Jews, and it never meant non-Jews. Many Bible editions 
cross-reference Matthew 21:43 to Acts 13:46 to this verse here to somehow support this fallacy. In that passage, Christ is recorded as having said at Matthew 21:43, "Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation." bringing forth the fruits thereof. Now, I have a Thomas Nelson study Bible, which is based on a study Bible from Liberty University, which makes the cross-reference from Matthew 21:43 here to Acts 13:46. It's ridiculous. I have another Thomas Nelson Bible, the one with the more traditional cross-reference system, which does not make that connection. The correct cross-reference from Matthew 21:43, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. That passage should be cross-referenced to Daniel 2:44 and the Micah 4:8. The passage in Daniel describes Daniel's fifth kingdom. The passage in Micah says that the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. That's where Matthew 21:43 should be cross-referenced. It sure as hell should be cross-referenced to Acts chapter 13. In answer to the fallacy of those theologians who maintain that this passage upholds the viewpoint of universalist replacement theology, which insists that here Paul alone somehow changes the nature of Christianity, as if such a thing were possible, forsaking Jews in the favor of Gentiles. I will answer that fallacy. First, Paul is found in other Judean assembly halls, in Acts 14.1, in Acts 17.1, in Acts 17.10, in Acts 17.17, in Acts 18.4, in Acts 18.19, and in Acts 19.8. And each one of those is a different assembly hall in a different town. If Paul abandoned the Jews here for Gentiles, why would he keep on visiting Judean assembly halls? There were plenty of Greek marketplaces and pagan temples to find potential converts. Then, long after his visits to all of these Judean assembly halls, Paul says in Acts chapter 26, verses 6 and 7, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. Paul never abandons the principles which he expressed throughout the discourse recorded in this chapter, that the covenants and promises of God are exclusively to a physical, genetic Israel, as he calls them 12 tribes in Acts chapter 26. Some supposed spiritual Israel certainly cannot be constructed of 12 tribes or said to belong to ancient Hebrew fathers. The whole idea of replacement theology and spiritual Israel is a lie, a lie straight from the pits of hell or the mind of the Jew. Same thing. The truth, which all universalist Bible commentators have missed, is that by this time in history, the first century, A.D., most of the Adamic oikumene, the white world, 
was made up of descendants of the children of ancient Israel, along with portions of the other Genesis 10 Adamic tribes. This becomes evident in Paul's ministry in his Discourse to the Athenians recorded in Acts chapter 17. The Athenians are Ionian Greeks. Paul never talked to them about the law. Paul never talked to them about repentance. Paul never talked to them about covenants. What did Paul talk to them about? Deuteronomy 32.8. When Yahweh God separated the sons of Adam, he left the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. The Judeans were only a remnant of the tribes of ancient Judah who were taken off to Babylon and, of course, to Assyria. And not many more than 42,000 of them ever returned to later be called Judeans. Among the people descended from these were many Edomites and other Canaanites who were converted to Judaism in the centuries leading up to the time of Christ. The proselytes were indeed twice-fold the children of hell. The purpose of the gospel was to bring that remnant of Judah, which Zechariah tells us, was to be saved first, Zechariah 12, 7, into one body along with the rest of the Israelites who were dispersed many centuries before time reconciling them to Yahweh their God in Christ. In Paul's day, most of the Israelites were living as pagans and divided up into the many nations of Europe. For this reason, Paul told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Behold Israel down through the flesh, or Israel according to the flesh, as the King James often translates that same phrase, just not in this verse. Behold, Israel, down through the flesh, are not those who are eating the sacrifices partners of the altar? What then do I say? That that which is sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Rather, that whatever the nations, not the Gentiles, that whatever the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. Now I do not wish for you to be partners with demons. This passage from 1 Corinthians 10.18-20 demonstrates Paul's knowledge that the pagan nations of Europe were indeed Israel according to the flesh. Most of those claiming to be Israel in Palestine were Israel in name only. And they were actually Canaanites and Edomites, according to the flesh. As Paul also explains in Romans chapter 9, the one-stick prophecy of Ezekiel was eventually fulfilled in the gospel of Christ. However, in Paul's day, the gospel was meant already to divide the wheat from the tares. And that's what's going on here in Pisidian Antioch. Verse 47. 
For thusly the prince, or the Lord, if you will, for thusly the prince commanded us, I have placed you for a light of the nations, for you to be salvation unto the end of the earth. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6 is part of a messianic prophecy which is recorded as having been cited by the elderly Simeon in reference to the Christ child in Luke chapter 2. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand. I'm reading from Isaiah 42. And will keep thee and will give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the nations. And the purpose of that light, and this is another instance, and, and in every instance that the Old Testament is quoted in the New, it would serve us well to go back and look at the Old Testament passage and see the context of what's being quoted. The purpose of that light is explained in Isaiah 42.7. Now Paul didn't quote it. But to those who were instant in Scripture, they would recall it because mentioning or quoting Isaiah 42.6 would invoke it. The purpose of the light is explained in Isaiah 42.7. To open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house the blind and the prisoners, were the children of Israel sent off from the presence of Yahweh their God, culminating in the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. These assertions are proven later in that same chapter of Isaiah 42, from verse 18. This is what Paul's referring to. Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant? or death as my messenger that I send? Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as Yahweh's servant, seeing many things, but thou observest not, opening the ears, but thou hearest not? I'm sorry, but he heareth not. Yahweh is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and spoiled, they are all of them snared in holes, and they are hid in prison houses. The gospel is a light to open the blind eyes and bring the prisoners out from the prison houses. They are for a prey, and none delivereth. For a spoil, and none saith restore who among you will give ear to this who will hearken and hear for the time to come who gave jacob for a spoil and israel to the robbers only jacob and only israel are the ones that need the light only jacob and only israel are the proper recipients of the light did not Yahweh, against whom we have sinned, for they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. Remember Paul's words, those who could not be justified by the law of Moses. 
those among them who believed they would be justified by Christ. We see the same purpose expressed again, where the same phrase quoted by Paul here in Acts also appears in Isaiah chapter 49 from verse 5. And now, saith Yahweh that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Paul said Yahweh formed him from the womb for his mission. This is also what he was referring to in that epistle. Why? To be his servant? To bring Jacob again to him? Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh and my God. shall be my strength. And he said, still reading Isaiah 49, it is a light thing for thou, that thou shouldest be a light to the nations, not to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. The word is goy, the same word where Yahweh told Rebekah, two nations are in thy womb. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, the lightest to the nations of Israel, and his Holy One, to whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, another messianic prophecy, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of Yahweh that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel and he shall choose thee. Paul's invoking these prophecies, which are exclusive to Israel, when he cites that Old Testament passage. He knows what he's doing. He knows the scripture. He expects his hearers also to know it, or to go look, and to agree with him that he is right. Verse 48, and hearing the people rejoiced and extolled, the Codex Beze has accepted, the word of the prince, and as many as were appointed to eternal life had believed. Now the phrase ta ethne is also the people here in this verse, applying both to believing Judeans and to Greeks, or those who were with the Judeans in this assembly hall. It must be noted here exactly what the text fully infers, that many of those who were present were understood as being those who were appointed to eternal life first, apart from hearing the gospel and believing. And it is those people who believed the gospel once they heard it, but they were appointed to eternal life first. Whether they knew they were of Israel or not, they believed the gospel, even though Paul repeated several times that the promises and the covenant were exclusively for Israel. Not once in his discourse, which all these people had heard, did Paul ever indicate otherwise. Not once. From Romans chapter 8, from verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, 
he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Only the ancient children of Israel and their descendants were foreknown, were called, were chosen, and were predestined for these things, all of which are explicitly stated in the scriptures of the Old Testament. From John chapter 10. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. They are not predestined for eternal life because they are not his sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. From Romans chapter 9, from verse 21. Has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Predestination for Jacob and predestination for Esau, who are the subjects of this discourse, from Romans 9:13 Paul continues What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction even healing the Canaanite woman's daughter because of his long suffering the children of Israel had to come to the fullness of their punishment and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, had afore, had before time prepared unto glory. Paul's comparing Jacob and Esau in this chapter. Only the children of Jacob were afore prepared unto glory. Even us whom he has called not of the Judeans only, but also of the nations. The proof of that. As he also says in Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. Reading Hosea, again we when Paul quotes the Old Testament, we have to go back and see what he's quoting and read it in context. Reading Hosea, whom Paul quotes in his passage of Romans 9, those words were meant only for the children of Israel who were being deported by the Assyrians. As it was stressed in the beginning of this presentation, whenever the Old Testament is quoted, it is important to go back to it and read the passage being quoted in context. That is the beginning of true Christian understanding. The apostles were not quoting scripture merely because it sounded nice or because it gave them something to write. They were quoting scripture because scripture is true and they knew that it was literally being fulfilled. Verse 49. And the word of the prince was carried throughout the whole land. We are still in Pisidian Antioch. And the Judeans urged on some of the noble, pious women 
and first men of the city and aroused the persecution against Paul and Barnabas and ejected them from their borders. The Judeans, who had great influence throughout the Oikumene, were always able to manipulate both the wealthiest and the lowest classes of people to persecute the Christians. And both the early Christian writers, Tertullian and Minutius Felix, testify that disbelieving Judeans were later behind all of the persecutions of Christians. There is more to this than a simple difference of religious belief. Among the Romans, the Judeans who rejected Christ never attempted to persecute any other sect, whether it be one of the many pagan Greek philosophies that many of the Judean people were also caught up in, or whether it was a native Judean sect such as the Essenes, which were also numerous at this time, the Judeans never persecuted any other sect, only Christians. Over all this time, only Christianity has ever truly threatened the devil and aroused such hatred in his minions. Verse 51. And they, shaking off the dust of their feet upon them, went into Iconian. And the students were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Iconian was the capital city of the district to the east of Pisidia and northeast of Pamphylia. The district was known as Lycaonia. We will proceed with Paul's mission in Iconian next week in Acts chapter 14. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night when we talk about the aftermath of the Wright Stag fire. I will be here next week, Yahweh willing, with Acts chapter 14. Next weekend, and I'll be here next Saturday night. I don't know what we're going to do yet, but next weekend I will be in the Gatlinburg area. And if the Dandridge Dandy wants to call me a secret agent to my face, he can contact me and we'll meet. Praise Yahweh and good night.